Well, friends, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1 this morning is where we're going to be. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. And let me just say, it is always a joy to celebrate baptism. But we ought not ever celebrate baptism without asking the question, maybe you're here and you haven't followed the Lord in believer's baptism. Maybe you need to take that step of obedience. Maybe you've been a believer. The Lord has granted, given you conversion. He's changed your heart. He's made you new in Christ, and you need to display that to a watching world in baptism. If that's you, take that connection card that Zach uh, talked about earlier and uh, fill it out and let us know that you want to be baptized, and we will will, uh, contact you. I still have in my Bible, uh, Susanna, not to put you on the spot, I still have Susanna's card, right? I've just stuck it in my Bible, so I've been praying for that moment since she said, hey, I want to get baptized. Last night, I had the privilege of preaching at City Life Church, which uh, they own this building. They meet here on Saturday night. I preached there. I showed them this card. I didn't say your name in front of them, just so you know. Uh, But I showed them this card. Man, they clapped. They were so excited that um, baptisms were happening, so we are absolutely honored. And I want to make sure that we extend that invitation, that if you're here this morning and you have not followed the Lord in believer's baptism, Write that down on that connection card. Let's have that conversation and talk about what that step of obedience might look like for you. So Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, is where we're going to be this morning as we conclude our series on how God grows healthy Christians. How God grows healthy Christians. Now, here is a reality. Satan hates growing Christians. Satan hates Growing Christians. Now, I claim no uh, close familiarity with uh, or relationship to the devil, just to clarify. But I believe he exists, and I think the Bible shows us some of his tactics, and he makes it very clear throughout the book of Acts, which tells us the story of the early church, that Satan hates growing Christians. He hates growing Christians. I'll prove it to you throughout the book of Acts. At Pentecost, when the church began, Acts chapter 2, the spirit fell and the church was born. Pentecost was followed by physical persecution. As Satan said, okay, you think the church is going to gain some traction? I'm going to see what I can do about that. And we saw physical persecution follow Pentecost. Shortly after that, the church starts to grow and continues to make progress. And Satan uses moral compromise to enter into the church, to create some inner uh, discord. And so he uses moral corruption and compromise there, again, just in the early, uh, early chapters of the book of Acts. And today we're going to look at the third way that Satan attacks the church. So we've seen physical persecution, and many of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing that even this morning. And we've seen uh, moral corruption and compromise, and uh, the reality is that the devil's still very much at work in the midst of that in the church today. And today we're going to look at the third way that he attacked the early church, and the third way that he might attack us. Now, it begs the question, and it's a dangerous question, but I'll, I'll ask it. If you were the devil, and I don't think you are, but if you were the devil, how would you attack the church? If you were the devil and you wanted to stop this thing called the church and just put an end to it and get Christianity outside of seeing you and say, man, let's have a campus without crew and without InterVarsity and without RUF and without all those ministries. Let's, let's have a Newport News with no local church. I want to get rid of the whole thing and then let's expand it to the world. We want to rid the world of Christianity. If you were the devil, 
How would you attack the church? You might say, well, I'd, 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 I'd take all its money so it had no more money, or I'd put government policies in place that made it difficult to uh, be a church, or I, 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 would, I would do all of these other things. How would you, if you were the devil, how would you attack the church? Now, friends, we need to remember, no matter how the devil attacks the church, Christ loves the church more. No matter how vigorously and violently Satan may set his aim on the church, Christ loves the church more. And his authority over the local church is always stronger than the devil's attacks. Satan uh, Satan will not stop the local church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevent, uh, prevail against it. So before we look at how the devil hates growing Christians, I want us to see the piercing light that Jesus loves growing Christians. Now, let me be clear. I don't mean that he loves growing Christians and he doesn't love Christians that are kind of stumbling along the way, right? That's not what we're saying. So he's saying Jesus loves us all. He loves all of uh, his Christians. So let's see. In the book of Acts, uh, Paul says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says to the Ephesian elders, the leaders of that church, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus obtained the church of God with his own blood. He goes on, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and and without blemish. So Christ gave himself up for the church. So he purchased the church with his own blood. He's given himself up for the church. And then that leads Paul to write this in Colossians chapter 1, which uh, this is a, a piercing word for me as a pastor. He says, him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. At the end of my days as a pastor, and I recognize that one day there will be a last day for me as a pastor, that's what I want. I want to present you mature in Christ. That's my goal, is to present you mature in Christ. And one of the realities that I see when I look at the Bible is that nobody cares about your spiritual growth as much as Jesus. Nobody cares about your spiritual growth as much as Jesus. Whether you are up and to the right and you're feeling good about the direction your spiritual growth is going or whether it's been a few years since you've had any traction and you feel like you're just dragging your feet through mud when it comes through the spiritual life. Nobody cares about your spiritual growth more than Jesus. Christ obtained you with his own blood. Christ gave himself up for you that he might sanctify you. Christ cleansed you by the washing of water with the word. Christ is presenting you to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. Christ is making you holy and without blemish. Christ is making you more and more mature in him. You matter to Jesus. Your growth as a Christian matters to Jesus. So it's appropriate that we sing songs that talk about us growing into the image of Christ. And it's saying, if more of you means less of me, take everything. Christ is at work in the midst of that. 
And so as we wrap up this series on spiritual growth and how God grows healthy Christians, we're going to look today at the devil's third attack on growing churches and growing Christians. And here it is, distraction. The devil's third attack on growing Christians and growing churches is distraction. How many of us have looked at our spiritual lives and thought, well, I didn't mean to stop growing as a Christian. I just got caught up in other things. I just stopped doing my Bible study. I just stopped praying. I just kind of drifted from the local church. I didn't mean to stop growing. I just got distracted. And so in Acts chapter 6, we see how the church responds to the temptation of distraction. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, what's going on here? You've got a local church, and it's in a good spot. It's growing. The disciples are increasing in number, and a complaint arose. Maybe it was a microphone, right? A complaint arose. It, it happens. A lot of times people will say, Jeff, man, I just, I think the modern church needs to be more like the first century church, to which I often respond. Do you know the first century church, right? It was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We see here a growing church, but a complaint arose. It's in a season of growth, but a murmuring complaint arose. And the nature of the text, scholars tell us, is that this was a growing sort of grumbling. It was an understandable complaint, but the way they went about it was not okay. So what we see, the nature of their complaint, is that it's a complaint by the Hellenists. That is the Greek-speaking uh, Jews who were part of this church. They had become Christians. They came from a Greek background. And their complaint arose against the Hebrews. That is the non-Greek uh, uh, um, background uh, believers. And the, the reason was because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, we're not given a whole lot of details about the situation. So there's a whole lot that we don't know. What we do know is that there was some sort of daily distribution where the church was given the authority and the responsibility to care for those who had no one to care for them. The widows who had nobody to care for them, it was the church's responsibility to take care of them. And so the church was doing it, but apparently not doing it very well. And there was this whole group of people that had been left out, had been uh, neglected, the Bible says, in the daily distribution. Now, when I read that word neglect, I read some meaning into it, and you probably do too. I read that word and I think, oh, that's a shame. Those, those, those uh, leaders were doing it on purpose. But John Stott points out, he says, it is nowhere in the text suggested that the oversight was deliberate or on purpose. More probably, the cause was poor administration or supervision. So when I'm tempted to think, oh man, they were doing it on purpose, John Stott says, time out, Jeff, not so quick. The text doesn't tell you that at all. In all likelihood, it was probably not the result of deliberate uh, neglect. It was probably the result of poor administration or supervision. Don't miss this. Poor administration can seriously thwart the fruit of good theology. Poor administration can seriously thwart or stop or hinder or distract the fruit of good theology. Christian health is not the result of merely believing the right things. 
It's the result of rightly applying those right things, right? It's not a, a, a matter of, of, of just knowing what is true, but properly applying that which is true. How many of us have sat through Bible studies, maybe years of Bible studies that we did not apply, right? I, we are educated far beyond our obedience, many of us. And so the text is showing us that there was this fault in the church, this rift in the church that was not a theological rift. It was an administrative rift. It was not the teaching that had gone wrong necessarily, but the application, the cultural application of that teaching. So what happened? Verse 2. And the 12, that is the, the leaders, the disciples, they, they summoned the full number of the disciples. And what did they say? They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the 12 apostles gathered the whole church together and said, hey, we've got a problem. Let's fix it. Okay, it wasn't a top-down solution. It was an all-incorporated solution. And what did they say? They say, it is not right. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, we need to be careful, again, how we hear this. Just like the word neglect, we, read, uh, we kind of read intentions into this. They are not saying it would be below us to serve tables. They're not saying we're too good to serve tables. They're saying we have an obligation that we are not free to ignore. They're saying we've been given a responsibility by Christ. We are under authority and we dare not neglect the responsibility that he has uh, given to us. And so they draw a helpful distinction here. They say that there's the ministry of the word, preaching and prayer, and there's the ministry of the table, which is organizing and serving the, the tables. We might understand this to mean pastoral work and social work, two critical pieces of the church. It is nowhere suggested that there is a value distinction, but rather this is a function distinction. Both are critical to the local church and its health. We need pastoral work and we need social work. We need the preaching of the word, and we need the setting of the table and the right distribution of the food for the widows. And so they said, choose among you seven men who are of good repute. They're reputable. They're trustworthy. They're full of the spirit. Their lives are governed by God. They are full of wisdom. They're wise in their workings. Many uh, churches see this as the birthplace of uh, what we understand as the diaconate or deacon. Right? Elders are those who are assigned and given the responsibility of preaching and teaching the word. Deacons are those who are assigned with the responsibility of setting the table and making sure that the administration of the church is happening well. In fact, in our uh, local church here at Catalyst, we are this summer going to be focusing in on this administrative piece with deacons and building a team of deacons. Uh, we're, part, we're in the middle of a three-year ministry plan, and we're establishing meaningful membership right now. And this summer, our next focus is on this this idea of how do we create a deacon team that will help administrate the table well. We see that these are, are men who are full of the spirit. Their lives are governed by God. They're full of wisdom. This, this is, this is, this is a, a critical piece of the church. In fact, one pastor 
wrote a, a sermon on this passage, and he titled it, The Day That Deacons Saved the Church. The Day That Deacons Saved the Church. And so we see that there's, there's a necessary reality here. All right, what happens next? Verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And they chose Philip. And they chose a whole bunch of other guys whose names are hard to pronounce, right? But what we find is that many of their names are Greek in culture, which means that they entrusted some of the responsibility to the offended party. Remember, it was the Greek-speaking background uh, believers who said, hey, our widows are being, distributed, are, are, are being neglected. And so in the solution, they said, okay, we're going to share the responsibility among all people here. And these they set before the apostles. And they prayed and laid their hands on them. So, let's ask a question that we ought to ask of every text when we read the Bible. So what? So what? How, what, what does this mean? It means that if you really mean what we just sang, that you want to be more like Jesus, then it's going to take more than just teaching. It's going to take the right application of that teaching. It means that if we're going to grow as a healthy church within walking distance of CNU that helps people everywhere marvel at Christ in all of life, if we're going to grow as a healthy church, we need solid teaching and right application and right administration. It takes both. It takes both. Think about it this way. Imagine you live with the greatest chef on planet Earth, right? And maybe you do, right? Uh, you can argue for your mama's cooking right now, right? Maybe you do. But imagine that that chef never cooked anything. I mean, they knew how. They could tell you how to do it, but they hated cooking, and they weren't going to do it. Well, then the knowledge doesn't do you any good. In the same way, the church needs the knowledge and the right application. So we see three principles for continued growth, and these are applied both to churches and to believers. Three principles for continued church growth. Number one, healthy churches solve problems in healthy ways. One of the biggest lies that we are tempted to believe is that healthy churches are the ones without any problems. That's not true, okay? That church exists one place, and it's not on earth, right? And you'll get to go there one day, but we're not going to get to go there today. So healthy churches are not those without any problems. Healthy churches are those churches that solve problems in healthy ways. We talked about it last week. We need gospel doctrine plus gospel culture. In fact, can we pull that slide up, the one that talks about gospel doctrine and gospel culture? I think I've got it out of order, and that was my fault. So I don't think it's the next slide. Uh, nope, not that one. Next one. That's it. There it is. We, we need both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. If we have gospel doctrine, good teaching, but we don't have gospel culture in how we treat each other and love one another well, we have hypocrisy. If we have gospel culture and we're really nice to each other and we treat each other really well, but we don't have right teaching or orthodox teaching, then we've got fragility and it won't be able to stand the test of time. We need gospel doctrine and the gospel culture, and that is where we experience power. And so that's what we see in the local church in Acts chapter 6, is they say we can't, we can't ignore gospel doctrine. We need the right teaching and preaching of the word. We need the ministry of prayer. And they say, and we need gospel culture. We need the right administration of those among us. 
Ray Orland, in his precious book, The Gospel, says, we see how massive God's love really is. And so we give up our aloofness, right? Our distance from each other. And we come together to care for one another in real ways, even as God wonderfully cares for us. This is when a church starts looking like a community where the God of John 3.16 dwells in power. Healthy churches are not those churches without any problems. Healthy churches are those that solve problems in healthy ways. Number two, healthy churches include both pastoral work and social work. Okay, we can go back one slide to that four-quadrant slide um, that shows us the importance of social work and pastoral work. Oh, forward, there we go. Um, you see here, this is called a Johari window, for those of you that are familiar with statistics and research, right? Um, it was invented by two guys named Joe and Harry, hence the name Johari window, really creative. But they said, whenever you've got a problem and you have two factors, here is a helpful framework to, to measure those two factors. And here we see that the local church needs both pastoral work and social work. We need positive experiences and expressions of both. That's what the church in Acts chapter 6 is saying. And so if we have on the upper left, if we have great pastoral work and great teaching and preaching, I said, if we have great preaching and teaching, and I mean, you really do here at Catalyst, right? If you have great pastoral work, but we don't have the administration and we don't, can't figure out how to get along, then that's not a healthy local church. And we're going to run into friction with each other. In the same way, if we go down and we don't have any pastoral work and any healthy teaching and we don't get together at all, well, then that's, that doesn't do us any good as a local church either. Or if we go over here and we have no pastoral work, but we have great social work, then we become the YMCA. This is exactly what happened to the YMCA. The YMCA started as a Christian organization in order to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. But along the way, it said, you know what? We really like basketball more than Jesus, and we're better at basketball than Jesus. And so let's, let's do basketball, man. Let's do that. And so they dropped the pastoral work. They had great social work, but they dropped the pastoral work. And if we do that, we've lost the local church. No, what we need is positive pastoral work and positive social work. Christ didn't die that we would be doctrinally correct, but socially divided. Christ died that we would have gospel doctrine and the gospel culture. Thirdly and finally, healthy churches continue, continue to pursue biblical health. Look at verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grammar in verse 7 implies an ongoing growth. In other words, Luke is saying in Acts chapter 6 verse 7, he's saying they weren't finished. They still had a lot of growth to do, but they were growing. This is the first of six times in Acts that Luke mentions that phrase, the word increased. The word increased. This is how he describes Christianity going forward, both in our lives and in our churches. Commentator David Pryor explains, God was at work and neither demons nor humans could stand in his way. Friends, so it is in your life. In the midst of your struggles as a believer, 
when it feels like your spiritual life is dragging one foot through the mud after another foot through the mud. God is at work and neither humans nor demons can stand in his way. You realize who's never mentioned in the text this morning? It's God. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, God is not shown or written to be an active character, but we know that he is. Anytime the local church gathers, God is in the midst. Do you realize Jesus is in our midst this morning, and he's doing 10,000 things that many of us will never know about. He's working in your heart in multiple different ways. He's working in the person sitting next to you's heart in multiple different ways. He's working in somebody else's heart in multiple different ways. For some of us, he's helping us rejoice after a season of deep difficulty. For some of us, he's helping us believe the gospel for the first time, that Christ died for my sins. For some of us, he's stirring our heart to the mission field. For some of us, he's preparing us for the next step of obedience. For some of us, perhaps he's calling you to follow him in baptism. God is at work in the midst of us. God is at work in your life, struggling believer, and neither humans nor demons can stand in his way. I love the way Paul says it in Philippians chapter one. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And no human or demon can stand in his way. God is at work. God is at work. And he who began a good work in you will continue and be faithful to complete it. He loves you. He's proven it on the cross. He is able to overcome whatever it is preventing you from spiritual growth. He's proven it in the empty tomb. I love the fact that when I ask the question in my heart and my mind, does God really love me? All I have to do is look at the cross. He's proven he loves me. And when I'm tempted to ask the question, can God do anything in this situation? All I have to do is look at the empty tomb. He's proven it. Is he able? Yes, he's proven it in the empty tomb. Does he love me? Yes, he's proven it on the cross. Now, if you're anything like me, and you are, we get distracted all too easily. But Christ continues to draw us back to himself. He continues through the preaching of his word, through the right application of his word, through the gathering of the believers, through the singing of the song, through prayer and through communion and baptism. He continues to throw fuel on the fire of our faith. And he continues to grow us as believers. This morning, in just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we know as communion. And maybe you feel like as you come this morning, you're not in a state of growing, you've fallen into a state of groaning and mumbling and murmuring just like that early church. And perhaps the Lord is calling you to repentance. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not in a state of growing. You've been distracted and the Lord is calling you back to himself through this meal. Perhaps it is that you're here this morning and you need to get back to marveling at Jesus. See here at Catalyst Church, we don't want to tell you all of the things that you have to do to get to God. We want to help you marvel at what God has done in Christ to get to you. Let me pray for you.